So, questions for the presenters. Uh, uh, I have a few issues with your mm -hmm. presentation, which I'll just raise and solicit your feedback. First, what we can say of any feature of an organism that it has evolutionary roots. That's trivially true. It's, it's got no substance. And I take it you meant something more substantial by, by your claims than that. Uh, and uh, I'm not entirely sure what that was, but let me gesture and you, you can after I'm finished, I'm like, I'm right or wrong, that somehow uh, a concern with, with privacy is an extension of a self-protective behaviors that were selected for way back when. Right? And so, so they proliferated because they enhanced the reproductive success then of the ancestral population that possessed those traits. Okay. Um, well, if that's the case, I think I think we need I think you need a much sharper characterization of that. I mean to put it as a concern, it's not clear to me that a concern can be selected for. I mean a concern is 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 a um, is it seems to be an aspect of our intentional psychology, our capacity to make judgments about danger generally. So a domain general cognitive system. Uh, and finally, methodologically, I mean, you need to propose an alternative hypothesis to this, right? So, of course, almost we can create an evolutionary story about virtually anything with enough ingenuity. So, we need to pit that against an alternative hypothesis and then try and determine which is more plausible. And here, there's a pretty obvious alternative hypothesis, which is as we grow up, we learn that our community tends to disapprove of certain sorts of things, and we don't want other people to get their hands on that information about us because it might do us harm. And that, that would be, you know, a, an explanation framed in the environment. I, I, thank you. I almost agree with everything you said in that, um, and I hope it was clear when I put caveat with a big bold red font on the top of the slide. Yes. That we are not claiming that we are demonstrating anything. So I, I don't think that the conjectures we posited can be either proved or disproved. Certainly not with this type of disaster. Our, I was about to say clearly, evidently not so clearly. It was an attempt to go in the direction of investigating this, what we feel to be a very novel approach to. Yeah, standard privacy concerns. So I, I agree with the witnesses. I actually, maybe the optimist I am, I see that as an opportunity for further work in the agenda. But this is really the first step. We don't, we don't think we prove, to repeat myself, we don't think we prove or disprove anything. We simply provide some evidence compatible with the conjecture, but so maybe other things. Okay. Thank you. But thank you. Okay, so then we'll um, yes, on actually, as we said, no, because um, of our literature, uh, yeah, really economic, physiology, and uh, experimental social science in general, which shows that uh, if you increase anonymity, people tend to be less cooperative, and um, which basically says reputation matters, or if you put eyes in front of the screen, and people are more generous, and so on, although this has been disputed, and so on and so forth. So, might it be a manifestation of the same thing? Like uh, we grew up in close-knit communities, we used to uh, be surrounded by people, so we behave here. Uh, 
socially embedded, and if you put people in an anonymous situation, that's, uh, that's where they molded into the free group. And the other, the other question I, I have is a um, more technical one, is how exactly you quantified the responses they gave. So they responded to the web sensitive question, and you somehow quantified that. And you have different variables, but I wasn't sure. So who assessed how sensitive are the responses were? Okay, good. So uh, about the first question, yes, again, uh, something that we want to do, and I mentioned near the end, is uh, so the directions we are taking, right? Uh, one is uh, to start seeing whether the facts differ based on whether the presence of another person is the presence of a complete stranger or someone known to the subject. Because you, you could make an argument following the, the closed community that the presence of someone you know actually elicits more pro-social behavior, more disclosure, more intimate disclosure, whereas the presence of a complete stranger may inhibit as we seem to find. So there could be this mediation, which is what we want to study in the official work. Uh, the second question, so the four dependent variables um, I mentioned, the intimacy was already following the same approach that Moon, uh, she's a Harvard professor, uh, proposed in 2000 and had been, student, had been used over and over again. Uh, there are already uh, independent raters are given a, a, a schema um, uh, that they use to rate questions by similar intimacy between, uh, say, one and five. Uh, and they are explained what one is, two, three, four, five. Five would be, I don't remember exactly the words we used to describe it, where I, if I remember correctly, take it from Google, but providing uh, um, something very sensitive about ourselves and a specific example of something very sensitive would be. So these uh, numbers between one and five are put down by these independent coders for each answer uh, provided by the subject. The other variables work out, I think it doesn't need an explanation, uh, number of pronouns uh, doesn't need an explanation, number of independence uh, uh, and self-contained disclosures, again based on moon, uh, again explanations were given to the rater, so this is uh, manual. So two of them are manual, two of them are uh, automatic. So the work counts, pronounced, automated, intimacy, uh, um, number of disclosures, manual. How high is the interrater reliability? I'm sorry? The, how high? the alpha, are you asking about the alpha? Is uh, it said well, like 90? No, uh, they, no, they, they reconciled. So after their independent rating, the codes were reconciled together. So we have one unique measure. I measured the integrated reliability, it's pretty high. It's yeah, it's like 80, 82%. But what we use in, in the regressions that we saw is that one measure. That's re the reconciled one. Yeah, which is what is usually bad in these steps. Well, so I took uh, Andrew then and Bishop then. Are you both uh, uh, Sandra as well? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Andrew then Bishop then. And if you can take your questions to the other speakers. Mm -hmm. uh, so following up on that, with, with the, the follow-up studies you're planning to do, um, I'm very concerned about the issue uh, with what people, people you know. Um, and certainly our work in Japan is that there are um, subtle gradations of people's reactions, and these are not all linear. Thing and it's people you know, people you trust, people you know well, or whose good opinion you see 
you know, the difference between having one of your professors who you may know well in uh, one of your fellow students who you may know well um, in uh, but you know having the mean girl in the class um, in the other room versus having your best friend yeah. who you trust with your secrets. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm very worried about the, 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 the very broad brush or your saying about the, the, the follow-ups. That's a great point. I'm not worried at all in the sense that uh, uh, the, the answer about, uh, because I didn't explain the design, so it's something that we would obviously consider the design. And in fact, we have a previous work uh, aptly named uh, Stranger on the, on the, on the Trail. So, sorry, Stranger on the Play uh, about this phenomenon, uh, which has been studied uh, also by others. Uh, there is, uh, I like the way you put it, a non-linear relationship between the propensity to disclose and the uh, uh, degree of uh, uh, intimate relationship with that person. I may be willing to share my uh, credit card number with a close friend because uh, I need this person to uh, do a transaction for me in a moment when I'm stranded, uh, but I may not want to tell this person what I did last night because I fear his or her objection or uh, reaction to, to, to me. So it's certainly something that is part of the, the, what, what we want to consider. Yes. So uh, I was just interested, you might have already presented this data, was uh, whether you saw main effect of the senses, because I saw that you had multiple senses, and I was wondering whether certain senses are more prone to privacy concerns than others? Uh, so we were looking into, um, so the, the quick answer is yes. Um, the, the, and in the, in the direction we would have expected. So the kitchen sink condition is the one with the strongest effect. Uh, and it's also uh, expectable because in the case you have a real concrete privacy concern is that the guard entering the room can actually see the screen uh, analogous to something which was being discussed yesterday morning in uh, in uh, in um, in, um, in uh, the San Diego presentation actually. Um, whereas and then we have a decrease visual audio and we don't know what olfactory uh, will where we lie we expect uh, not find an effect or if any effect it would be very very subtle. So. If we were weasels, it would be different. <laughs> but the information was in visual form, right? If it were spoken information, you might get a different... Uh, uh, yeah, so there, there could be potential interesting interaction there. But the information was going to be visual form, and then uh, all the subjects were seeing the question on the computer and responding yeah. on it. Yes. Okay. So I took uh, Twyla Bruce VA here that's all right. So, question to Peter. Um, so, I'm thinking about this um, uh, decreasing half-life of secrets. Um, this seems like something you could somewhat test empirically, right? So you could go back and look at, you know, at, at when these have happened in the past versus now. If there actually had, it seems to be an increase in the time that the secret was first. The time the secret was first exposed to what it was talking about. Uh, see if that, if that gap of shit has shrunk. And also, it's not just really the, the half life of time has changed, also the magnitude of what can be shared, which I guess is the penalty you pointed out. Um, so, it was very interesting to try to go back and take some math to look at the big leaks and see if that shifted in um, terms Right. By doing that. Um, well, lawyers notoriously don't measure things, we just. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, and Ellsberg's secret was um, the Pentagon Papers were notable because nothing like it had happened before. And 
partly that was the sociology of the Cold War, which is you didn't, even if you found out, you didn't want to help the Soviets. And, and, and that's where the sociological difference comes in. But, but maybe, maybe the follow-up, and was it? The, the follow-up I had was just that, uh, this is also, I mean, something that's obviously true for private businesses as well. They can't, they can't keep secrets like they used to either. So, I mean, pointing to that, you could say that this is a race and and, and, and I'd, be, I'd be glad if, if you or others afterwards could, could help. I, I've, in, I've given this at one other place, and, and somebody raised the corporate secrets. It's, it's a little bit related to us having a hard time keeping our private information secret as well. So each would be a little different. But I think how to measure the corporate secrets would strengthen the argument, I think, for sure. And there is also a certain kind of movement within government circles, less so than in the private sector, towards various forms of open sourcing. And the idea that actually there's too much secrecy doesn't actually help in many of the operations that are trying to be talked about here to have everything being so secret. And the kind of idea that you have secrecy by default and then you things are revealed. There's actually some people arguing now that actually with the growth of open source intelligence, you might also want to think the other way around. Actually, what we need to keep secret for what reason, rather than the default, very evidently. That goes straight into the worry about leaks. Yeah. So the, the way that debate played out in the United States is need to know is the traditional way you keep stuff under. And then after 9-11, the new mantra was need to share because we needed to connect the dots. And then it turns out when you need to share, an awful lot of people touch stuff and then you worry more about leaks. And so there's this sort of push back closer to need to know. So. It's not a simple arrow towards openness uh, by any. Okay, so is that Bruce? So it's actually on, on the same topic. It's, it's actually more complicated than this. Yochai Bentler has gone through the leakers and looked at is it changing over time? And to his surprise, he found that it isn't, that the leakers are getting are not getting bigger. That Snowden is an anomaly like 9-11 was an anomaly. And Manning doesn't count? And uh Snowden Manning are only two. He, he, the, the paper, you saw the paper drafts, we're getting it. I was surprised, he was surprised, that we're not seeing this general trend towards towards more bigger leaks. And most leaks, looking at corporate and government, tend to be pretty focused. Now, I agree that technology makes the big leaks easier, and the bigger leakers become bigger. But the average, if you move the outliers, doesn't seem to change. And the spy satellite getting caught by astronomers? That, that's, he's, he's not looking at that. He's looking at actual just whistleblowers. Right, but part of the story here is that it's more than that. Uh, understood. The, secret the, the, th the thing that I, I think there's much more of a sociological change than a technical change that's important here. And that's fundamentally that keeping secrets is cultural. And the old way of both business and governments was you were brought into the fold, you were told the secrets, you became part of the club, you got a job for life. And, and when you're a member of the community, you're less likely to betray the community. When you have someone like Manning on a four-year tour, Snowden who's a contractor, there's no quid pro quo, there's no job security, they're not taking care of you, you are much more likely to betray your cohorts in favor of all of humanity, which is what the modern, which is what a leaker does. So I, I think those those pressures are much stronger than just thumb drives are getting bigger. So that that's really what I see the drive towards is more openness. Can I just brief? So so I agree with that. In some of that three new hands on this too. So I'm going to come to the Well, but I have a very well happens to respond to Bruce's point. We should be able to respond to the point. Go ahead. 
Yeah. Respond, respond to the point, but we've got three new heads trying to carry this on. Just to make sure we get to the end of the pullback and then we can carry on. Uh, so very briefly, um, the draft paper talks about contractors, and Chris Segoyan's done a bunch of work about going on LinkedIn and finding the names of secret programs on the LinkedIn uh, 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 resumes of contractors who want to get the next gig. And so the, this, the, the secret spreads in part because the contractors have to signal their knowledge about how to do these things. So, okay, so I saw, I saw one, two, three, but we'll come back to that at the end. I'll make sure Diego and Paul get their chance to do it. Diego? I have a question for uh, Laura and Alexander, um, which is <coughs> anecdotally, it looks as if on the net we do things we don't dare do in other physical environments. And so you uh, can think of the ex governor of the New York State or the Domenical Anthony of China. Wiener is worse than that. So it looks as if the process you, you pointed out at the end of Alessandro may be responsible for that. So when we are removed uh, from sensorial stimuli, we think we are more primal than we really are, so we do incredibly stupid things. And I was wondering whether there is any study uh, on that, or how it connects with, with your work. Um, personally, I'm not aware of a study specifically on this, uh, but our study was on this, in that one of the motivating stories we had was this discussion about why we may feel comfortable sharing certain photos, even a risque, intimate photo of ourselves online, where it could be seen by millions of people, uh, whereas we would not feel comfortable at all uh, being in that same attire in the spectrums. Now, there are obviously many differences between the two scenarios. In one, uh, the other people are miles, thousands, millions of miles away and may not physically threaten you. In the other, someone could threaten you. For instance, that's one of the main differences. But we wonder whether, if you take the model of all these uh, practical differences, whether some uh, last remainder is there, which could be indeed what we are referring to in our conjecture is this evolutionary rule of this, this concern, which is elicited by the visual cue having someone in your proximal space, but is not online, which then leads to the argument we made at the end. If this, and I'm not saying that we prove it at all, but if this conjecture were right, then it could be of, offer an additional explanation why privacy and security behavior online is, is challenging, because we have evolved a certain set of cues to detect threats, which we don't have uh, or don't have in the same manner online. So it's the, your example is exactly one of the motivating stories we have. I mean, in a sense that it seems also connected to shame. Uh, so if we feel less uh, shameable somewhat. But I really don't know this is a projection, but if I make a, a brief comment on David's okay. uh, talk, uh, the, the diffusion of these uh, hard-to-detect uh, devices could uh, make us paranoid, right? And we uh, under self-controlling all the time, so we, we may kind of 
sweep away naturalness in the way we behave. Some people worry about it. And these are serious work. And Wojtek and I, in the paper that we, we have on, on, online uh, in the program, argue in favor of naturalness, of the fact that precisely because you do things naturally, the cost condition of system theory is a lot of things. And so an act of kindness that anybody could do, including a, a dishonest person could do, if it's done naturally, it means you're doing it in a genuine kind of way. Yeah. But, but then, if you listen to what Alessandro was saying, we really don't care. If we don't see it, it's not going to modify our behavior. It's a big contradiction in the studies of surveillance and reaction to surveillance. Is psychologists seem to find some things. But if you look at the broader sociological trends, they actually indicate rather differences. It's like those things are still unreconciled. I'd like to see a lot more cross-personalization between you know psychologists and sociologists to test competing explanations for what you know also what we already see for what happens. I think at the moment we're not clear on that. I've challenged psychologists on several occasions to do this in the past in my old establishment, and that cooperation was not forthcoming. And I think most of us like, when it comes down to it, we're all guilty of this. When the, exp when the point of, comes for us to make an explanation for something, psychologists say, well, the evolutionary psychologists say, because evolution. The sociologists say, because society. You know, the, the communications people say, because of language. You know, and it just, the problem is we've got to actually start, I think, more doing more transdisciplinary work where we actually test those explanations together, as you were suggesting, I think. And that's something that I think hopefully comes out of these kind of events, at least I would hope it does. Okay, so just, I know, so we have four very eager people to comment on this, so I took yes. one, two, three, four, we'll keep it brief, please, I'll do one on that here at the end. Yes, so just on for Peter and David, I mean, there seems to be this unquestioned assumption in this recorded all approach to, to surveillance, which is that we just record everything and throw some kind of algorithms and machine learning that somehow the future will make itself apparent. And that, you know, that algorithms take big data and confusion as inputs and produce the names and addresses of terrorists as outputs. And, and it's not supported by the evidence, it's not supported by everything we know about statistics. Is there, I mean, we talk about it as though there's a trade-off between, you know, the privacy, blah, 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 fighting the bad guys. It's like, well, no, it looks like in recording everything, you've delivered 100% of the privacy harm for 100% people and 0% of the promise gain. Is there, um, is there any hope or kind of understanding of, of, of you know, the, what seems like a central difficulty or fact in, in the surveillance community, or, or are we still delivering that? Are we taking comments and then at the end we wrap up, or are we responding? We've got five minutes, right? So I think it's, it's all the same conversation. So I have to add one, two, three, four, talk about yourself. Yeah, yeah, five minutes. Yeah. Um, mine is similar, my point is uh, a question, David, similar to what you just asked. Do these companies, when they're saying that they can do these surveillance landscapes and surveillance birds, snakes, and God knows what else, how do they process all this information? If they, they offer that up, that they're having difficulties, it is processing the information they've got. So you've got this. Well, that is, it's exactly what you're saying. It just sort of presses from the idea that somehow the Internet of Things and big data and analytics will all come together in a seamless form of, you know, stuff that will work. I mean, yeah, and of course it doesn't. But the thing is, actually, that doesn't provide some kind of safety or answer. There's often been, sometimes analysts in the past have said, well, it's not going to work. So that's okay, we don't have to worry about it. But actually, a malfunctioning form of ubiquitous surveillance 
is probably even worse than a, than a completely functioning form of either surveillance. And Bruce's work has done talked about this with security. It's like, what are the consequences for justice, fairness, not to let alone privacy, which I think is one of the least concerns here, but justice and fairness in society for malfunctioning security and surveillance systems that are everywhere built in? I think that's a real concern. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, just to the point that David and Peter and Bruce were touching on about the idea of secrets and withholding information. And David said something very poignant about we need to think about well, what is the rationale for keeping this information secret? And in the field of mass intelligence, it's often a, a very myth based rationale is that if you provide information about the threat, you will have mass panic and hysteria. But that's not supported by the evidence at all. And thankfully, that attitude is changing and information is being released because time and time again, and uh, many and other colleagues have said this, if you withhold information, it prevents effective uh, response to the threat at the time. And it also means in future emergencies, the public will distrust any source of information. Why should we believe you now? You weren't fully open with us last time. And it gives sucker to conspiracy theories and things like that. So unless there's a very good reason to keep things secret in the field of mass emergence, I think then policy makes our reasons be as open as you possibly can. <laughs> I'll tell you what later. Okay, so when I heard the half-life of secrets, I thought you were going to give an entirely different talk. We might have too. And well, the reason I was saying, if you think about what's the secret, if you think in times of you know military events, the ship is leaving at nine tonight. That's a secret with a very short lifetime. What the intelligence community is actually trying to protect is secrets about their methods, not the specific thing they discovered. It, I think after World War II, the reason they wanted to keep their secrets about encryption and breaking, code breaking was the enemy didn't understand how good we were at it. And they were trying to preserve this world in which the, the enemy would behave stupidly because they didn't understand how much we could uh, listen into it. It seems to me that one could now argue that the, the understanding of the power of intelligence is pretty widely understood by everybody. So the question is, what is the half-life of a particular method? Now, it seems to me that what they were worried about in the past was not they would be embarrassed if their method was revealed because it might have been sort of forward-leaning, but that in fact we simply, you know, we lost a powerful tool. And so it seems to me there's been a change. I think most of the people who, who were concerned about Snowden didn't go read what he actually, what the secrets were that he revealed. It was the range of methods that people were using that was, that were, uh, upsetting, and so the, the question is, what has what has changed? That you know, you said the front page test. You know, to to me, there there wouldn't have been a front page test if somebody had uh, you know learned that we'd broken an enigma. Okay, we would have said shit. The Germans know them. But it wouldn't be, oh my God, my own country will be embarrassed that I broke the enigma. Okay. So what is it that's changed to me that now the principal concern is, oh, my own country will be embarrassed of me if they discover what I'm doing. I I think I think the whole tone there's a concept of tone here that in a 25 year season it's not captured, but I think there's a lot that really has to do with how long it's useful to keep your your method secret anyway. And if, there's a difference between I want to protect my method because I'll be embarrassed versus I want to protect my method because I'm, 
you know, the, the people stop doing stupid things. And that is missed in this business. Can we briefly do last comments, or what do you want to do? Uh, so, Andrew, are you all COVID related? Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, uh, so I, I just like a one sentence. So to Dave's point, one of the differences now is that is that the agencies are surveilling us pervasively right. instead of surveilling the German U-boats uh, e or the Soviet communication. And so the possibility of blowback politically is different when it's us as the target. And then um, in terms of Cormac's question um, about um, isn't it BS and this stuff always fails, it's overstated. Um, the, one of the things the report says that hasn't gotten as much attention is how much of the capabilities since 2001 were developed uh, to support military operations in the field in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so if you're trying to watch the IEDs and, and do something before they blow your convoy up, you get a lot of testing about what works and what doesn't. So I wouldn't assume that everything sucks. I, I, I'd say there's a lot of capability without They've had an awful lot of time to practice a lot of things for good reasons of saving people's lives, good, people, good reasons within the military's framework. So I just wouldn't assume that it's all uh, lousy in quality. Can I just um, comment on the, on the half-life of methods? It's what's, what, one thing that's not widely known, I mean, those of some security studies know this, but it's that the NSA, for example, commercializes many of its um, methods eventually. So, for example, speech recognition um, functions in computing is largely from NSA algorithms which they patented in the 90s. Uh, so, you know, there, there's, there is a half-life, but it's also, it's not just that they want to keep secrets forever. Sometimes they're quite willing to release them if there's something that they can make money out of it. There's an office of commercialization within the NSA. Okay, thank you. So my apologies to Angela and uh, also to Jean. Um, no, I want to say... <laughs> you want to say it's lunchtime? Great. Sure. Our, no, wait. <laughs> Our flight departure times and airports on the board behind you. Oh, that no. Was a total no, paper six is too valuable. That equation is too important. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even on the covert side. Yeah, I mean, is anybody else interested in sharing? It's a good uh, idea. Tomorrow. Good. That was it. No submit. Okay. Information disclosure about Mama. Okay, so no apology to Gene, but. Um, <laughs> So it, is, it is lunchtime. Ross, I guess you know more about why you're doing lunch here. Like, that well, it should be lunch for third side. Um, <laughs> <laughs>